Welcome to HEAL. On today's episode, Dr. Maisha Claiborne, medical doctor and trainer of neurolinguistic programming, has us take a deep look at our automatic conscious, subconscious, and even unconscious conversations that keep us trapped in disease, poverty mindset, and fear of our fellow man. I'm your host, Dr. Sarah Marshall. Welcome to Heal. Thank you so much, Dr. Maisha Claiborne, for being here. I, God, you have been such a beacon of light and possibility for me since the very, very, very first day that we met at a conference uh, seven years ago, eight maybe. As it's like, yeah. gosh. Yeah, I think it was 2013. Long? Yeah, because it was my first conference. And, and this particular conference is a group of people from across many different industries who come together to talk about what is it going to take for us to transform humanity and to take care of the planet. So you have like, we have this wide variety of people. And I remember somebody told me that my promise for the world, that transformation would come to the healthcare industry was coming out of another doctor's mouth and I had to go find you. And so you had a poster session and I came up to you and literally like things I had been saying to other people for the last two years, you were like, hi, I'm Misha Clearyboard and this is what I'm up to. And I'm really committed that doctors have satisfied and fulfilled lives and that healthcare produces these results. And I was like, everything I'd been saying. And so then right? it's kind of been love at first sight. <laughs> it was, it was. And then the next year yep. we did a breakout room together when I had a, what was it, my six month year old, uh-huh. <laughs> yep. my six month year old to San Francisco and we did a, a, a cool breakout room together. Yeah. Pretty, pretty yeah. So it's been, it's been an awesome relationship of watching you over the years and you have a very, I, my opinion, eclectic practice and approach to your career as a medical doctor. And so I want to hear about that today. And I also really want to start though, with what, what are you up to now? Like, what are the things that are most important to you as a doctor and in the world of healthcare right now? Well, man, it's so interesting because what is, what's important to me is, is similar to what's always been important to me, which is that, you know, people who are healers, who are, you know, it it went from doctors to medical professionals to now it's like all healers and healers come in all shapes, sizes and professions now I realize, right. And, but it's, it's that those who are self-proclaimed healers, who are trained healers, especially in the industry have the, the most fulfilling careers and lives. So that's still hugely important to me. What's been added to that, and especially has become clear to me in the last year, like with everything that's going on with COVID and, and, you know, Black Lives Matter and, you know, just this whole political hot mess that has gone on over the past, well, four years, but really over the past year, it's been magnified. I've come to realize that where I've been drawn into is the empowerment of Black people and people of color, especially, you know, having seen and been inside of, you know, the, 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 the white supremacist culture inside of medicine as a physician and, and how much we as, as and I don't speak for Black women because I'm a Black woman, but I know that it happens with Black men is how much we've even normalized and internalized white supremacy culture, normalized the, the systemic racism because it's what you just grow up with. Like I grew up in Huntsville, Alabama, and there are certain things that happen that, you know, now I can tease out to say, oh, that was, that was not cool, right? And then at the time it was just shrugging, off, shrugging it off the shoulders because it's like, this is just the South, yeah. you know? So that's, that's what I, what, what's really important to me is to really begin to heal the unconscious conversations that give white supremacy culture, that give racism, that undo the, the, the unconscious trauma that has, you know, led to all of that that's going on now, you know, yeah. the, the unconscious trauma, that intergenerational trauma that we experience as, as people of color, as, as black people, and to, for those, you know, allies, white people who want to do the work to really begin to un or dismantle the, the unconscious conversation that led them to have their biases. Yeah. And that's the work that I do now. That's the work that I'm steeped in now. And that's a whole, we're going to get into it. You've been working in neuro-linguistic programming, correct? 
That's the area that you've gotten correct. trained in. And so they, I'm, I've only heard of it. I know <laughs> I have it like I know what that is. And I bet I don't, or I don't have the whole grasp of it, but I know it's a tool that gives people access to how to reprogram those unconscious conversations because they're unconscious. They're running mm -hmm. in the background. And, mm -hmm. and what does it take to bring those forward? I also would like to talk to you about like, what do you see or what have you seen as some examples either for doctors or for patients on either side of the fence of those situations where white supremacist culture or our white privileged masculine culture up to this date has been an impact on people of color in medicine specifically? Like, what does that look like? Well, I mean, let's just take COVID. I mean, if we mm -hmm. want to like take the most recent right. is, is, is COVID. And who has been disproportionately affected by COVID is Black people and people of color, Black and Latinx. Mm -hmm. You know, we have been, and, and it's, and it's, it has to do not just with the fact, well, just overall black people and people of color have higher morbidity and mortality rates. You know, you look at um, maternal mortality rates and black women are much, much higher. So all of that is, has to do with the unconscious bias, the white supremacy, the white supremacy culture, but let's just take COVID. You know, we know that it has just ravaged our community and that's because, and, it, and, and most recently, I don't know if you heard of Dr. Susan Moore's death. She's a black physician, black female physician out of, I think it was Iowa, Midwest. Midwest is, is very nebulous to me. I hate to say it, but I'm, <laughs> Understood. I'm a little yeah. geographically challenged, but I believe it was, I think it was, it was Iowa, but she, she got COVID, she was hospitalized. And initially she was being taken care of by a white male and a white female nurse, white male doctor, white female nurse. And the way she was treated, the way she was denied pain medication, she, she, she literally told the physician that she was having short of breath and was, and was told, oh no, you're not having short of breath. Mm -hmm. And so it's this type of treatment. Now she was a physician, right? even her, MD could not save her, yeah. right? And so it, you can imagine if this happened to, and ultimately she got transferred to another hospital where she received, she reported, you know, she kind of cut another video saying that she was receiving adequate care, but by then it was a little too little too late. Yeah. She had to like strongly advocate for herself once that they did the chest CT and they saw that she had infiltrates in her lungs, she had this pneumonia. Uh, in her lungs. And then they gave her more pain as then they gave her appropriate treatment. But yeah. for those who don't have that degree, for those who cannot advocate for themselves and keeping in mind that families are not able to come in, right. these people are all alone, yeah. you know? So and from inside is, the disease state, our brains aren't working super well. If it, you yeah. know, even close to, I mean, to be able to use words, articulate brain inflammation is known to be a part of COVID and many mm -hmm. other conditions. I mean, that's, you know, a place where we're really struggling right now. And I, I've, yeah. I'm certain there's, you know, these different subsets, a, a, a culture that I'm more connected to are white males in economically suppressed communities where every single time they go into a hospital, it's like, well, you're a drug seeker automatically considered to be you know, not actually here for whatever. And I, I just had a personal experience of this happen very recently in my life where my, you know, sister's partner went into an emergency room and three and a half days in the hospital, they didn't identify shingles. He was in pain head to toe. And it was just like this whole, and then he finally got out of the hospital and it was actually me and his wife that worked it out. Then we represented the case back to a physician that he was able to get care from. And it was five days after the initial onset. Now I can't say exactly what happened in that circumstance, but because of COVID, his wife wasn't able to actually be with him in the hospital. And there was a whole advocacy breakdown that we dealt with for four or five days until we could get this sorted out. The nurses had even seen the typical zoster rash and the doctors never dealt with it. And there was just this whole conversation of like, well, I know you're in a lot of pain, but we're going to give you ibuprofen. And that was the only conversation. Now that might've been medically relevant. Like I said, like this is a, it's always tough with these isolated cases to know exactly what the circumstances were, but I know there's just, there are these medical biases that we are dealing with that is impacting many different people's pain and care levels that are getting 
you know, and what's, what's the solution to it? I recently was talking to someone about, you know, that analogy that if the airline industry operated like the medical industry, nobody would get on an airplane (laughs) in terms of our, you know, and so what can we do to start to break out of this? But I think there's both the hard tangibles of checklists and strategies and structures, but that's got to come from a different context. Cause I think there's been an attempt to start to put more of those things in, but it doesn't remove, like you are dealing with these unconscious biases that we walk around with from our own upbringings, from our own training, whatever medical school we went to, whatever, you know, mentors or doctors we had and the biases that we inherited from them, you know, like you've said, they're unconscious. They go, you know, underneath the radar. We don't even realize they're happening until the statistics start to show it. Like where we can see people of color, you know, Latinas and blacks all the way through this entire COVID epidemic are dealing with far more consequences of not getting the medical care that they need that would have made a difference in their cases. And some of that's directly at the level of the emergency room. And some of that's the lack of resources in the communities they live in. Right. And I think, you know, it's, it's just, it, it magnifies what's already been there. So it's not like it's, it's, it's nothing new under the sun, right. right? It's just that it magnifies what's already been there. And because, you know, we've suffered just in general as a nation, as a world, but particularly as a nation, so many deaths yeah. um, due to COVID. And then when you look at, you know, the, the proportion of deaths that are Black deaths, you know, then you're like, whoa. Proportionate <laughs> right? to the actual percentage of the population. Percentage yeah, it's, of it's the com- whole yeah. population right. when the, the percentage of the population that's actually Black yeah. is lower than the percentage of deaths that's happening in the Black community as a result. Exactly. Then you're like, oh, right. Yeah. I don't have the specific statistics for that, although we could definitely pull them up and we'll have them in the show notes for this episode. But what struck me recently, and this, you know, came out of President Biden's initial agenda speech was that we're 4%, the United States is 4% of the world population and we have 25% of the COVID cases in this country. So that kind of disparity, then you layer on top of that, the disparity of, okay, of those 25% of global cases, here's the number of deaths. And then, you know, African-Americans and Latinas are X amount of the population of the United States, but they're a higher percentage of the deaths from COVID. And you get that same kind of disparity showing up right there. Right, right. So a wise one, what can we do about it? (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, honestly, I think continuing to have conversations like these is key because I think what what typically happens is, and this is, you know, we're speaking inside of the medical community, but this is just at large, is that, you know, something happens, a disparity is, is named, you know, there's, there's some uprising about it initially, and then it's business as usual, Mm -hmm. right? Because, you know, people get on with their lives and they forget. And I think that's why we continue, have continued to loop inside of this statistic, um, both medically. And then if you, let's, let's start talking about police, you know, brutality, police murders, and and, and enforcement of the use of force in the, in the, in the police field. Right. And so, you know, Black Lives Matter has been around for a very long time. And the, the uprising, even from as far back as Trayvon Martin and before, that's, that's been a conversation for a long time. But it wasn't until, you know, the world was sit, sat down in a pandemic, then they had to watch a Black man be kneeled on, his neck be kneeled on for eight minutes, that then it became a worldwide phenomenon. But I think, you know, I did a, a live, um, I think it was a couple of weeks ago, what's the highest intention? there is a highest intention because now you can't unsee that. You can't know that, right? That information. And yes, you can go back to business as usual, but then that's magnified. That magnifies the the problem, right? Oh, this is the problem. We go back to business as usual. So I think that that there there has been a transformation unlike, or a conversation started unlike ever before, an awareness unlike ever before. And I think the the way is to keep these conversations alive so that you know corporations begin to look and say, you know what, I wanna do this work, I wanna make this change. You know, governments, police um, forces, right? I don't believe the, at all that the, the answer is to defund the police, but to re-educate and you know, re, take a, a new look at resources 
you know, that, that there's, what can we do as a community as we uh, glean these awarenesses to begin to shift that narrative? But the only way we're gonna do that is to stay in conversation about it. Yeah. To stay in conversation with forward movement because to talk about it is just talking about it, right? But forward moving conversations that inspire people to say, you know what, I wanna do this deep work. And to be honest with you, Sarah, one of the reasons I, I do the work that I do with neurolinguistic programming is because I believe that the work to be done is at the individual level first, because the system is made up of people. Yeah. Yeah. You know? And I think that so often we attempt to address something at the system level, at the organization level with a new policy, or they outline new values. But if those values are laid on top of an existing paradigm, mm -hmm. we will then filter those values through the same paradigm. Like it doesn't right. alter anything. And in the work that, that I've done in the realm of transformation, which I will just mostly call me doing the work to get a new view about something I didn't see it that way before. Mm -hmm. The places in my own life that have made the biggest difference is when I have done that at the individual relationship level. And mm -hmm. like a personal example for me of this was I was engaged to be married to a man and he had two daughters and his, and this is when we met, when this relationship was happening was when I first mm -hmm. met you. And his ex-wife obviously was very much involved in our lives as the mother of his children. Mm -hmm. And for a while, you know, she had been in his life for 14 years. She was 14 years my senior, among other things. So she's much older than me. And I had this whole disparity of like, she was untouchable, unreachable. And I, and I, of course, had my mental construct of who I had decided this woman was based on, you know, whatever exposure I had. Mm -hmm. And there was just no way that that was going to work for the lives of the children. And I knew from the work I had done in my own life that the number one way to handle this was to actually build a relationship with her, mm -hmm. like to get connected to who she is as a human being, to learn yeah. about her, find out about her life, her hobbies, her interests, what she struggles with, like make her a real living, breathing human being. It didn't mean that we had to be best friends. Right. And so I reached out to her and I asked her if she would be willing to have coffee, just her and I, because up until that point, it always been involving the kids or involving mm -hmm. my former, you know, whatever. Mm -hmm. So we started meeting every two weeks for coffee mm -hmm. and the transformation in our relationship. And we just started, like, we were on the opposite sides of a lot of things. You know, I was the mm -hmm. new woman moving into her life. There was a lot there that was like, but we both chose to come to the table and have the conversation. Right. That's powerful. And I just learned about her. And of course, cause you know, oftentimes we date similar people. So we had a ton in common cause there were like all these overlaps and we didn't walk out of there like bosom buddy friends, but there was a mutual <laughs> respect Fast forward three months later, because this all happened in the Netherlands. So there was a whole foreign country component. I'm right. at a baby shower and she sits down next to me to make sure she translated everything in Dutch to English so that I'd be a part of the conversation. And like, that was two months after we had gone through this initial stage of getting to know each other. And so mm -hmm. I think like you're saying is that the individual level and it's specific relationships, us being willing to go get connected to people that we wouldn't otherwise talk to, we wouldn't otherwise right. have in our field and like totally turning myself inside out. I've struggled internally with like my fear to come to these conversations about Black Lives Matter because I just already know I'm ignorant. I know there's a lot, like I was raised in a relatively white suburban area in upstate New York and there was just not a lot of relationship there for me. And so I've watched myself not like, I want to have the conversations. And then part of me, there's an internal resistance. It's like, you're going to look like an idiot. <laughs> and that shows up. And I just now I'm like, I don't care. I'm bringing mm -hmm. that to the table. And if it means a little emotional moment for me, when I say something that doesn't land well, or actually isn't honoring the other person, mm -hmm. then I get to discover that in that moment and make the correction and like the courage to come to the edges like yeah. that. And I think that's what it takes is the courage to be uncomfortable. You know, it's interesting, my yoga teacher, you know, I'm a yogi for what, 14 years now, I'm losing count. And my yoga teacher, when all of this happened, she called me and she, and she was like, oh my God, I, I, I just have to apologize. I have been so blind, mm -hmm. you know, and, and, you know, we had this beautiful conversation about it. And she was like, well, how can I help like what can I do I I want to do something and you know the first thing I said to her was guilt will not solve any problem right 
I mean, I get it. You know, the way I say, the way I, I languaged it to her was, you know, I get right now some white people's eyes are bleeding after seeing that, right? Because yeah. it's if you if you didn't know and it, it and you and you see this type of thing and you're like oh and you see the inhumanity of it yeah and then you're like and you get connected to the inhumanity of it and you're like what this is what's been going on all this time yeah you know like that's that's the response and so you know I get to have compassion for that and you know then there was well here are some resources here are some books and uh, and she started a book club and so now in my yoga community they have a book club and I, I facilitated a conversation amongst the community just to answer questions, just to, you know, get, get the sense of where people were. Yeah. And, and a lot of them, a lot of the community, they were like, you know, we shouldn't be putting the burden of the, you, this on you to have. And I'm like, it's not a burden if I'm willing to come to the converse, conversation, yeah. you know? So I think that the courage to be a little uncomfortable, the courage to mess up, yeah. uh, the, and the willingness to be open enough to just listen and understand, like try to understand, you won't understand that you'll never fully understand, right? Like that's a, that's a piece too. Like understand that you'll never fully understand, but 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 then the effort to to try to hold that empathetic space yeah. is important, right? Yeah. And to keep being willing to learn how to be in conversation appropriately, <laughs> you yeah. know with with people of color and what's appropriation and what's you know biased and 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 here's the other thing you know just to to flip the coin right there's the whole internalized white supremacy culture amongst black people there's internalized racism amongst black people and then you know we have our own biases yeah and so because i you know i there's lots of conversations of what black people don't do this is a white person thing to do this is a, you know, mm-hmm. Asian person thing to do, you know, and that goes across the board. So it's not like we're without bias. Yeah. It's just that, you know, the impact of the bias nationally has been detrimental to our culture for the last 400 years. Yeah. Right? I had a, right as the Black Lives Matter movement started to come to a strong undeniably difficult to ignore head this summer you know it was just like there was and and to be honest I really do think that I am one of those people that 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 movement at that moment in time is what made the difference in my life and it wasn't like anything I had heard about Floyd's death his murder like that it wasn't like my brain was like oh I had no idea that was happening my brain was like oh yeah but when it's a single story and a single story and a single story mm-hmm. I just didn't get the scope of it I really didn't and then that started to alter there was some incredible YouTube videos there was some amazing work that got put together that just like you know had me sit back and have to just take in this the size of the level of what we were dealing with and I had a dear friend of mine who is in the fitness world Tango Towns come on the podcast and we were talking about what he confronted in himself as a black man who had grown up in South Central LA inside of the gang community and Mm -hmm. then made it as a professional athlete because in that realm that was your only real it was like, you're going to be an athlete or criminal. And he tried criminal for a while and then went to athlete and like his evolution through that. And then he shared about this incredible moment when he woke up literally and got that he was a man first and he was black and had took a part for him. I would imagine that was probably a unconscious conversation that came forward where he had been living inside of being a black man and there was a view he had, there was like this coloring of his world inside that context. And when he opened the context to, I'm a man and I'm black, like this whole thing shifted for him. And he talked also about that same thing of noting his own internal biases and the things that he had to start to confront where he wasn't willing, you know, he now lives in Salt Lake City, Utah, which is a predominantly white area of the world and he's like you know now people are people and there's people who are kind and there's people who are unkind and he shifted his relationship to it as being viewed through the filter of race yeah and I think that that's I mean that's that's I I love that that context and we need to reach a tipping point where that is the case because there's been so much dehumanization of 
of other races, you know, black people and Latinx and, you know, I mean, I speak to a lot of Indian doctors yeah. who, who, who immigrate here and, you know, that we, they see it as we see it in, in that culture as well, brown skin, like brown and dark brown skin, there's that, there's the dehumanization yeah. of darker skinned people. And so I think that it, it is, there has to be that I'm a, I'm a person first, right? Person yeah. first, then I have a culture, you know? Yeah. Because it's not just about skin. I mean, it's, it's made to be about skin culture, but skin color, but it's, there's culture behind it. So I'm a person who feels like, yes, we all believe the same color. And I think it's, the point is not to see color because it dishonors the culture. Yeah. And I think that that's one of the things that happens amongst people who are like, well, I'm not racist. I don't see color. Well, that's, you know, like I, I had a, an interaction with a white acquaintance friend. I come, you know, we mm -hmm. had we met and had some really good conversations. And then all the, the Black Lives Matter sort of stirred up and, and uh, I did a live on something. And then, you know, there was a comment like, well, you know, uh, you know, I, I have, I'm not racist. I married a black man and I have, you know, my, my, my biracial children. And I was just like, no pass because you have to, you still have to examine the biases there, right? The, I don't see color dishonors the culture in yeah. any, in any case, yeah. in any case, right? Yeah. Like what the, 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 you know, Indian culture, the, any of the Me Mexican versus Honduran versus, you know, to like really separate out that people have specific cultures and practices and things that have been invented, African culture, the different, all the different um, lineages and, and tribes. It's beautiful to really yeah. honor that, right? And then we make it about black and white or yeah. black, white and in shades of you uh -huh. know spectrum of totally of, of shades right yeah so that's that's the thing so I, I love I that think it's courageous yeah and and that's what I I mean I just love what you just you just gave me a whole new way to interact with this because I hadn't quite gotten there and it's like curiosity about culture I mean I'm a world traveler and I love going to new cultures and just being the outsider and showing up inside of it and a finding out all the crazy things that I do that they're like, what is wrong with you, white American person, <laughs> you know, and like getting to be a part of that. Like, I, I love it. And I, I long time ago, you know, I've spent a lot of time in Latin America about over the last 18 years, I've traveled 18, 20 times to mm -hmm. Costa Rica, Panama, Nicaragua, Mexico. And I had noticed one of the places I stirred up my own bias was I noticed that when I am in Mexico, I'm clear I'm low man on the totem pole and a sea of people that this is their world and their life. Then I moved to Scottsdale, Arizona. And suddenly I was inside my own American culture of white supremacy. And I would encounter the Mexican working class, many of which were undocumented immigrants, especially in Arizona. And I watched myself interact with them differently. And it was like, it was, I think it was coming home from a trip from Mexico. And it was like, I stepped off the plane right back into these old, and I was like, oh my God, like it, it, it struck me internally yeah. how much I would interact with people differently because of the physical location I was in. And then I was in their country. It was one way. And then when they were in my country it was another. And I was like, what is this there, my, who, what this, and none of which actually lined up with my personal values of compassion and integration and cooperation and getting to know people and the love of diversity. Yeah. So I love what you just yeah. said, because now I get to be on a conversation about being curious about culture mm -hmm. right where I'm standing with anybody that's in front of me and to not assume that I know anything about what their culture is based on just their presentation to actually get curious about it, find out. Cause you know, one of the things Tango talked about is he's not African. He's like, I don't, I've never been to Africa. I don't identify with African culture. Like I'm an LA kid, <laughs> you know? And it was awesome to hear him talk about that. So like, just because a person even looks a particular way, you don't know diddly squat about their culture. Like ask, find out what is their culture about? And often yeah. there's so much to be surprised because of we are melting in the pot more and more and you may have right. no idea. And then I also had a girlfriend who was white, blonde, blue eyes, and she was born and raised in Colombia in South America. Mm -hmm. And because she'd gone to American school, she had no accent. 
but her entire life as a child and growing up was Colombian. And she would say, I'm Colombian. And people would argue with her that she was American. Mm-hmm. And, it, and it's like just all the different ways that we do that. So I do want to talk a bit about neuro-linguistic programming and NLP, because it's an amazing tool that I know very little about. So can you tell us just a little bit of like, what is that? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I, you know, before we jump right yes. into that, Good. I just, I just want to say that I, I love the conversation. And I love the courageousness of stepping into the growth and the awareness. And I think that, you know, you had asked the question earlier, what can we do? And I think these conversations are critical, critical. And, you know, I, it's, it's getting curious. There was something around getting curious that you said, like getting curious and asking about culture and, and being, oh, Sarah, it'll come back to me. That's all right. (laughs) It'll come back to me. Great. It's right there. Yeah. But anyway, neuro-linguistic programming. I'm going to tell you guys about that. And then while I'm talking, my unconscious mind is going to bring it all back to me and I'm going to like jump in and and do a, and do a sidebar. Okay. It, it, it it is a, a tool. I like to call it a set of tools embedded in the methodology. That's what I, I, that's kind of like how I, how I relate to it. Right. It is a way of, you know, thinking, being, speaking, and it, 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 it's the process of getting connected and integrated with your unconscious mind, right? The conscious mind integrating with the unconscious mind so that you can have access to those, those automatic programs that you're running and have access to actually shifting and, and changing those, right? Being at the at the driver's seat and the driver's seat of your thoughts, beliefs, emotions, and, and values. And so we, as people, we have the, this brain that's kind of like a computer and we get these programs installed in us from a very early age via our parents, you know, family members, teachers, school, friends, you know, all of these things, these, these experiences that we have we get these programs installed, these values, these belief systems. And as we grow older, you know, there are circumstances that reinforce these values and programs. And then after a while, the programs just become automatic yeah. and they give us our beliefs and they give us our values and they give us our behavior patterns. Yeah. And we don't always realize that we're running these programs. Right? And so then we make choices based on unconscious programs. Yeah. And, and so what neuro-linguistic programming does is put you back in touch with those programs, how you came to be, how you came to think the way you think, and then gives you the tools to shift that if you'd like to, because some programs work for us. Some programs have made us successful. Yeah. Some programs have made us successful to a point, you know, like for myself, it was always, you know, I'm, I've got this, I'm going to do this and I'm going to figure it out. I'm going to figure it out myself. And, you know, that got me very, very far until it didn't. Until yeah. one day I needed my community and, and it, it was a lot of hard lessons learning to need my community. I'm just and laughing okay because this is so right where I community. am in my life. Yeah. It's like, <laughs> yeah. I'm incredibly driven, stubborn to a fault in terms of like, when I want to figure something out, which makes me a great diagnostician. I'm great in, you know, that realm of medicine. And I've got a very strong go it alone, genetic, not really, but programming, you know, that's like buried in me. And this year getting diagnosed with chronic fatigue syndrome was, it still is the best thing that ever happened to me because it's literally taken away a whole bunch of my ability to just run this whole ship by myself. Mm -hmm. And it's great. It's forcing me into a whole nother level of teamwork and community and like looking Mm -hmm. towards what I want to build and having to shift that. And I don't wish on anybody a crisis to have to confront, which is often what happens is Mm, it takes a crisis, a death, a job loss, something that has a shake up. And those are places that, that there's an external force that works against us. Mm -hmm. Okay, fine. But could I maybe do this without having to go through the trauma first, you know, and that's what I get (laughs) access to from neuro-linguistic programming. I get that that could be a tool for that. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and, and the thing about it is that, 
you know, and this is why I love getting this conversation out there is because it is, it can be more preventive in nature. Just like, you know, you're, you're a, you're, you're a doctor and, and you, you delve in the prevention of disease. That's, that's your, that's been your sweet spot. And as an integrative doc myself, you know, like prevention is key. And so in this work of neuro-linguistic programming, it is all about, you know, can you get at the source before the trauma happens? Before yeah. the, before the, the you know, I, I used to say either you, you sit down or God will sit you down. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> yep, yep, right. definitely happened, right. totally. Yeah. So, you know, before, before God has to be like, man, sit down. <laughs> Do not pass go. Do not collect two hundred dollars. Sit down. <laughs> and so this gives you sort of that access. And one of the things I love about it is that it is trauma informed because you know you talked about the the genetic right. We we know that there's epigenetic consequences to well being, yep. and there's intergenerational trauma right. So this has the capacity to unhook that intergenerational poverty mindset, trauma, you know, even, even from a physical standpoint, you know, the beliefs about our own well-being, it has the power to un, unhook that. One of the things I love is, is that, you know, you can believe whatever you want to believe about the process, but if you do the work of the process, the process works. Uh-huh. Yeah. That's like half of the medicine I prescribe. <laughs> People are like, I don't really know if I believe in homeopathy. I'm like, that's okay. Do you believe in your cell phone? They're like, what? I'm like, yeah, it's all the same. It's actually based on the same technology. Don't even worry about Mm -hmm. it. Exactly. Yeah. But that's, so again, as as new to this, I mean, it's been an area I've been familiar, but I haven't really taken to study. Where would people start? Like, do you want to find a practitioner? Are there courses? Like if you're interested in starting to look at your own programming, where would you start? Well, I would, you know, there's, there's lots of ways. It depends on how deep you want to go with the work. Some people want to just learn a little bit about it. And there are books. There are lots of books on that. I think there's like one called NLP Essentials. If you really want to, if you're like one of those people who is like deeply analytical, you can, you can buy the structure of magic, which is by the founders, Richard Bandler and John Grinder, And and they go deep into it. So there are some, you know, books that you can start out with to help you to understand. But if you want to do the deep work, I recommend one of two things. You either contact a practitioner, you know, or you learn it. Yeah. Learn it yourself. And both of those things I'm available for, of course. But I I think what I wanted to do, what I wanted to say, because I think I get this question, I think it'd be, it'd be valuable to sort of distinguish conscious mind and unconscious mind, um, unconscious, subconscious, and unconscious mind. Because I think that some people get confused about what's, which is what. So, you know, when we're thinking about doing deep work or unconscious mind work, we're, we're thinking about that. If you, if you, if you can imagine an iceberg, like the, the iceberg that the Titanic ran into. Right. And at the top of the iceberg, you know, you, the, there's the saying, this is only the tip of the iceberg. Well, that comes from somewhere. At the, at the top or the tip of the iceberg, this is your conscious mind. This mm-hmm. is all of the things, the, the, the things that you think about, you, you consciously remember, you, you're aware of, you know, these, the, the, the conscious movements, the sensory, the, in, the bringing of the sensory input, that's all conscious mind phenomenon. So then you have like the part of the, the iceberg that's sort of just below the surface that you can still see a little bit of it. And that would be considered subconscious, right? Yeah. So they're not like not immediately aware, but if you got quiet, you might, you might hear whispers. This is where some of the emotions lie. This is where some of, some of the beliefs lie. Your, you know, some of your opinions and things like that. Those are sort of subconscious stuff. Then you get down to, and some of your emotions are like that, our subconscious programming as well. And then there is the entire rest of the iceberg. Which is what, like 75% of the mass of the iceberg or something like that? Yeah, it's huge. It's huge, yeah. right? Uh-huh. right? <laughs> it's huge. And that is all the unconscious mind. Yeah. And that is like your deeper trauma, your deeper fears, 
those your 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 childhood installed values and beliefs, any intergenerational things that have that have been passed down to you, all of that is unconscious programming, right? And that is the thing that actually runs the show. That is the thing that runs the show. Yeah. And that unfortunately sometimes is the thing that sinks the ship. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. Because you don't see it coming. Yeah. You don't yeah. see it coming. So it's, it, it's why it's so important to pursue this kind of work early on. And what I will say is with people, how do I recognize that I need to do this deeper work, right? It's a question I get, well, how do I know that I need to do deep work? Well, I always say, if you are, if you are running into some of the same obstacles over and over, or the same obstacles across areas of life, then you might want to look at that there's a deeper issue that you cannot see. You know, I say how you do anything is how you do everything. And so if you're noticing, you know, there's this, this theme across your areas of life of, of difficulty, or if all of these areas of life are good, but you got this one area of life that you just cannot get together no matter what. <laughs> I uh-huh, mean, like everything uh-huh. else is yeah. peachy. And then you got this one thing over here and then you, you know, you kind of just want to give up on it. Consider doing deeper work there, Yeah. right? Because you might find even that area of life that's not, you know, that's not doing what you want it to do yeah. is somehow impacting the rest of it. And I know like throughout the last 10 years of my life, I've watched that happen around like glass ceilings, for me in my career and in my finances and one not directly through NLP, but actually was through a book that I read lost and found your access to everything. And it's by Janine Roth. And she also wrote women, food and God. And she is this woman who has lost and gained over a thousand pounds in her lifetime. And she's had every eating disorder we know of. And she has said her greatest pain is her greatest gift because she eventually healed her relationship to food and her body through mindfulness Mm-hmm. And it was like a 30 year journey. And she wrote this book, women, food and God. And it went gangbusters. Like she made millions of dollars off of it. Well, then she got caught up in a Ponzi scheme and lost all of her savings. So then she wrote lost and found, which was about <gasps> losing millions of dollars and then her access back to it. And she has these, like, it's probably more subconscious work. Like those sentences where you fill in the blank, like I am fill in the blank, rich or poor in relationship to money, or, mm-hmm. you know, rich people are blank, money is blank. And it just kind of let that consciousness happen. And yeah. in reading that book, I saw one was my mother won't love me if I make more than a hundred thousand dollars a year. Oh, wow. And there were these specific conversations that had happened between me and my mom over time where my mom is a major humanitarian. Like she's just Mm -hmm. for the goodness of all people Mm -hmm. and us taking care of each other. And so there had been some like quips and some conversations about Mm -hmm. rich people, but she didn't actually use that phrase. And it was just interesting, Mm -hmm. but she'd say things like, you know, a quarter million dollars was like a huge amount of money. And I'm like, $250,000. Like I kind of would like to actually make that kind of money in my life, you know? (laughs) And, and I started to run into this thing with her. And after reading that book, I actually went and had a conversation with her about it. And, and like, we worked through, and she actually said like, yeah, I take responsibility that some of these conversations Mm -hmm. I laid on you. Mm -hmm. And there was this whole, like, if I have more, someone else has less. And it was like, Mm -hmm. you know, which in many physical realms is true, but then in the energetic realm, it's infinite, you know? So those were some of the ones I dug out, but I can also know that, you know, you can look in the area of relationships, you can look in the area of your health, you can look in the area of business and like so Mm -hmm. many different things. And where I'm at now is like, my life is great, but it has me be curious. Mm -hmm. Where else am I restricting myself? Where Mm -hmm. could I have more freedom? What, you know, and particularly in growing, you know, my business beyond an N of one with just me, which I now have Kendra, my producer. So I've gotten to two. And that was a huge breakthrough for me this last year working with her. Mm-hmm. She's so professional. She brings so much to this podcast and it's mm-hmm. given me access to recognize what a greater team inside of, you know, health education is where I'm headed next is like, I've been in private practice for 12 years. I love what I get to do on the individual level. And I have a boutique practice of like 50 clients. I'm not committed to only impacting 50 people a year, Mm -hmm. you know, but the way that I work with people intensely, I don't want to double that to a hundred with me Mm -hmm. one-on-one. Like then we get into patient physician, you know, heal thyself, 
how do we take care of ourselves? You know, and I'm not, you know, you've dealt with like burnout in doctor moms. Mm -hmm. You've dealt with that conversation Mm -hmm. big time Mm -hmm. of what physicians are dealing with. And like, I actually just read the 2020 Medscape survey that comes out every year about physician satisfaction and lifestyle. And there was, I haven't read that one yet. It's good. And there's one whole section that says, I'm going to, you know, I'm I'm spitballing the numbers, but we can look at the report, but it's something like up to 30 to 50% of physicians would take a pay cut between 10,000 and $50,000 a year to have more work-life balance. So more 50% would drop their income significantly. I love Medscape. I love that Medscape report. I read it every Every year year because they always add a new element, you know, like a new statistic that you, 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 it makes you think. And that's one that wasn't in last year. No, they did a whole bunch of work, especially given COVID and what physicians are dealing with and the impact. I mean, and this was a physician survey. You can extrapolate it out to the entire healthcare field. I mean, I have patients who are ultrasound technicians who are occupational therapists who work at all levels of medicine and they're all struggling this year. You know, it's been nuts. Yeah. Pharmacists. I mean, I, I've, I coached them all and I see, I'm like, Ooh, nurse practitioners, PAs, you know, like you said, art respiratory therapists and you know, the techs all the way, all the way to, you know, even the food service people and the, and the waste management people. I mean, God, look at what they're dealing with. Absolutely. Yeah. Look at what they're dealing with. You know, operations that all of that. Right. So yeah, no, I, I get it. I I'm interested. I'm going to go and look that up now and and check out the survey because I haven't seen it yet. So before we wrap up, the last thing I would like to hear about is like, what are you doing now? Like, what is your, cause you've moved on from private practice. Is that correct? Awesome. And how long were (laughs) you in private practice? Oh, you got, let me see. I was in private practice 2007 for 10 years. Actually, I sold my practice on my 10 year anniversary. Good for you. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah, I did. And, and I stay, I will say that, you know, I sold my practice. So I came out of residency in 2004 and I started my practice in 2007. And then I, you know, ran that for 10 years and I stayed, you know, I kept my, my foot in clinical, you know, for the last three years. This is the, this is the year that I'm like a hundred percent stepping out. Cause I've done some supervision work and yeah. I don't, I don't see it. I see, you know, I say, I keep my pinky toe in it. That's what I, yeah. I keep my pinky toe uh-huh. but this, this year is the year that I actually am cutting the ties. Yeah. And it's, it's a challenging conversation, internal conversation to have. Like I have to deal with myself on my, with my emotions, but I really just discover like I'm complete. Not that I don't like it. It's just that I'm complete with everything that's in the horizon working with, you know, I have a, I have a, a co-authored book called Conscious Anti-Racism that, yeah, that I, I, I'm, I've, we've put out, we put out back in December and awesome. we are myself and my partner, Jill Wiener, uh, she's a physician here that's locally in Atlanta. We're doing corporate anti-racism trainings. So we, we, mostly with healthcare organizations, but we're starting to branch out with that. And we tend to start with like boards and, and execs, the C-suite. And yeah. so we're doing top down because they're the decision makers, yeah. right? And, and so there's that piece that I'm doing now. And then with my personal company, the Mind Remapping Academy, I'm both training and I do, you know, one-on-one work, but I mostly am focusing on training others in the technology of neuro-linguistic programming, in hypnosis. I certify coaches, like the training is a foreign one. So that's what, what I do primarily now is I run that, those training programs. I run a four year we just started our January training. Next one's coming up in April. Awesome. And, uh, and then of course, for people who still want to do like the, the, the personal breakthroughs work, I do that work with them as Great. well, that deep work. Well, we'll have your contact information and your websites will be in the top of the information for this at this edition of Heal the Podcast. It'll all be on sarahmarshallnd.com so people can get the resources for all of it because you, I mean, you know, you're a wealth of knowledge. We could get into all kinds of things, but I really appreciate you coming and being here with me. And, you know, for me, I noticed not, this wasn't real, but in, in telling the truth of a subconscious thought was like, oh, I did my black lives matter podcast, right? Like, oh, like I did it and we can now move on. And I'm like, no, no, like I'm not letting, you know, so it was so great to have this 
appear again and come back up to the consciousness because it just keeps it present for me. And then all the way through the work you're doing with NLP and being able to help people be trained in and also deal Mm -hmm. with their own personal biases. Like, thank you. Thank you for doing that work. Well, it's, it's my pleasure. I have to say it's been, you know, I was called into that work. I had no um, idea that I would be called into the work. Right. And I, and I think that you know, initially it was just, oh, I want to train people in NLP and hypnosis. And then it became like much deeper. So I'm so grateful to be able to have these conversations. I'm grateful to you for inviting me into this conversation. My old friends. Yes, I know. It's so great. <laughs> so good. Your son's now six, six and a half. Is that right? Yes, he yeah. is. He's almost six and a half now. And, oh. and so it's, it's, man, it just, it just goes to show, I mean, you, you want to know how much time has passed. You look at the kids and yeah. you know, look at their development, but this work has taught me so, so much. I mean, even the work that we've been in together, the transformational yeah. work that we've been in together. And I believe that that's have been, has, was sort of the catalyst for me getting into NLP and for me, you know, standing for something so much bigger that I would have never, you know, there was a part of me that was like, who am I? Mm-hmm. Who am I? to speak in this way about this stuff, right? I'm not an MBA, I'm not a sociologist. I don't have a doctorate or master's in sociology and you know, I don't have a PhD in education. I don't have all of that. And, and I do have you know, my, my own experience in the healthcare system as a black woman, having grown up in the South. I do have the training that I have in the unconscious mind. And I do have that context of transformational work and what it takes to, you know, to move the needle. Yeah. And so I appreciate platforms like you that allow me to continue to remind myself that my voice is needed. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you, my dear Maisha Claiborne for everything. And uh, until we get to do this again. Yes, ma'am. <laughs> Inspired by the success of HEAL, we are now a community of over 2,000 incredible healers. We will be launching some courses and workshops in 2021. Be the first to know about them by joining our mailing list at sarahmarshallnd.com. Thank you to today's guest, Dr. Manisha Claiborne, for conviction and power. For a full transcript and all the resources for today's show, visit sarahmarshallnd.com backslash podcast. Special thanks to our music composer, Roddy Nickpour, and our editor, Kendra Vicken. As always, thank you for being here. We'll see you next time.